My name is Louisa Fish-Satan. I'm a second-year MDiv student here, and I've had the pleasure of um, helping to organize this fascinating and wonderful event um, that we are about to take part in tonight. Um, the issue of money and politics is one that is important to me, and I've had a lot of conversations here at the Div School about that issue and the ways that it affects us in different ways. So I'm really excited to um, be able to welcome all of these panelists to talk about specifically the moral aspects of those issues, which I think we're really well situated to do here at the Div School. Um, a couple of housekeeping announcements. People may come in and out um, during the course of the event. That's totally fine. If you are leaving, just try to do so quietly. Um, and your program, I suppose you would call it, has some space um, inside um, that's intentional so that if you come up with a question uh, partway through, you can write it down because we'll have plenty of time for Q&A at the end. And I wanted to make sure you had a place to write that down so you don't forget any questions that come up as the panelists are speaking. So without further ado, I want to introduce our moderator, Dan McCannon, the Emerson Senior Lecturer here at the Divinity School. And I hope you all enjoy the evening. Uh, thank you so much, Lou, and uh, thank you for the hard work in uh, bringing this together. This is a really uh, exciting, uh, dynamic group of folks who will be uh, opening our conversation and eventually inviting all of you into the conversation uh, uh, together. Uh, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce each one. I'll just introduce them sequentially and uh, move on to the next uh, part of our program. Uh, I'm not introducing you in the same order in which you're, sp you're sitting, so if each person could kind of give a wave uh, as I introduce you, that'll help everybody out. Uh, Jeff Clements is co-founder and board chair of Free Speech for People, an organization that engages in public education, legal advocacy, and coalition building uh, to challenge big money in politics. He's also the president of American Promise and works with Americans all over the country in support of uh, 28th Amendment uh, to reclaim our democracy. Uh, I'm guessing that might have something to do with corporate personhood because Jeff is the author of Corporations Are Not People, Reclaiming <laughs> Democracy from Big Money and Global Corporations, uh, and has published widely on that uh, theme. Uh, he has served as Assistant Attorney General for the state of Massachusetts and practiced law for many years. Uh, in 2009, he filed an amicus brief before the Supreme Court in Citizens United, arguing that the First Amendment does not shield corporations from campaign finance laws. Please welcome Jeff Clement. <laughs> At the other end of our table is Jim Wallace, who is a New York Times bestselling author, public theologian, speaker, and international commentator on ethics and public life. Uh, he served on the White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and on the Global Agenda Council on Values uh, for the World Economic Forum. Mr. Wallace is the author of 12 books and president and founder of Sojourners, a national faith-based organization with a Christian commitment to social justice, uh, really the anchor organization of the evangelical left for 
many, many years. He serves as editor-in-chief of the journal Sojourners, and his most recent book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America, was released in January of 2016. Please welcome Jim Wallace. Next, we'll jump to the middle. Uh, Nadim Mazan is an educator, entrepreneur, and community organizer dedicated to bringing fresh progressive voices into community leadership. He started the digital creative agency Nimblebot and Makerspace Danger Awesome. Uh, Mr. Mazin was elected to the Cambridge City Council in 2013 after an energetic grassroots campaign uh, in which it was really close. He won by just six votes. And then in 2015, he returned with the most votes of all the candidates uh, running for Cambridge City Council. So he's seen lots of different dimensions of political campaigns. In his first two terms, he's worked to make city government more accessible to the public and to build coalitions that address Cambridge's most pressing issues. Uh, he's also focused on social justice and equity for all members of the Cambridge community. Please welcome Nadine Yes. Next is Reverend Mariama White-Hammond, uh, who serves as Ecological Justice Minister at Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church and on the leadership team of the Mass Interfaith Coalition for Climate Action. From 2001 to 2014, Reverend White-Hammond served as Executive Director of Project <coughs> Hip Hop, a youth-led organization that engages young people in critical thinking, artistic production, community organizing. She continues to serve the Boston community on the boards of Focus Incorporated, working for affordable housing, and UP Academy in South Boston and Dorchester. Reverend White-Hammond holds a degree in international relations from Stanford and, a master's, and is a Master's of Divinity candidate at Boston University School of Theology. She is an ordained minister in the AME Church. Please welcome Reverend Mariama White-Hammond. Kajay Bongsa graduated from Harvard Divinity School in May of 2016 uh, with a focus on religion, ethics, and politics. While here at the Divinity School, he was active uh, participant in our Religions and the Practice of Peace initiative, on um, which he also served as a student assistant. Uh, he studies the intersection of social and economic progress, particularly looking at the ideas and thoughts uh, that inform theories and models of economic and social progress and how religion fits into that story. He's currently exploring the role that technology and media can play in promoting a culture of peace. Mr. Bong says, originally from the Chittagong Hill tracts of Bangladesh, uh, prior to coming to Harvard, he lived and studied in post-war Sri Lanka for 12 years, uh, working for the youth movement Sri Lanka Unites and an international um, organization called ZOA. Please welcome Tajay Bongsa. <laughs> and finally, we have Rabbi Aryeh Clapper, uh, who is Dean of the Center for Modern Torah Leadership, Rosh Beit Midrash of its Summer Beit Midrash program, and a member of the Boston Beit Din. He previously served as Orthodox Advisor and Associate Director for Education at Harvard Hillel, as Talmud Curriculum Chair at Maimonides High School, 
and as instructor of rabbinics and medical ethics at Gan Academy. Rabbi Clapper has published in Tradition, Meirot, Dinei Yisrael, Beit Yitzchak, and other journals, and has presented at numerous academic and community conferences. He's a popular lecturer who has consulted internationally on issues of Jewish law, and his work is cited regularly by academic and traditional scholars. During his time at Harvard Hillel, Rabbi Clapper earned the respect of faculty and students with his innovative teaching and personal warmth. In the words of Harvard Hillel Executive Director Bernard, Bernard Steinberg, he is provocative and evocative. Please welcome Rabbi Aryeh Clapper. I have a list of questions that I'll be asking each of our panelists. But before we do that, I want to quickly um, uh, give a bunch of facts uh, that will provide a backdrop uh, to our conversation. Uh, and I want to thank Lou again for her hard work in uh, pulling together some of this background information that will put us all on the same uh, page at a factual level. I want to begin um, by reminding everyone of the words of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So tied up in that one amendment, we have the starting point both for thinking about campaign spending and political speech and for thinking about the role of religion in politics and public life. The role of religious organizations is also shaped by the rules governing 501c3 charities. These rules specify that tax-exempt charities may not participate at all in campaign activity for or against political candidates and may not devote a substantial amount, which courts have sometimes interpreted as more than 5%, of their time and resources and efforts that seek to shape legislation. Those rules apply to religious organizations as organizations and to their leaders when they're performing organizational duties like leading worship. It does not apply to leaders or members of religious organizations in their capacity as citizens. It's also worth noting that a religious organization that doesn't want to live by those rules can renounce its tax-exempt status uh, and pay taxes the way another kind of organization might. Our current laws about campaign finance date back to the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, uh, which has a long list of subsequent amendments and Supreme Court decisions uh, interpreting and limiting its provisions. The act limited the amount that could be donated directly to can candidates by individuals or political action committees. Subsequent rulings blocked restrictions on how much candidates could spend and how much other groups, uncoordinated from can campaigns, could spend promoting candidates. The McCain-Feingold Act of 2002 tried to limit that sort of soft money <coughs> spending on behalf of candidates, but separate from campaigns, by prohibiting broadcast ads that name a candidate in a certain period of time before an election that are financed by a corporation or by any entity using corporate or union funds. In the 2010 Citizens United case, 
the Supreme Court ruled that provision unconstitutional, holding that the First Amendment's uh, require, guarantee of freedom of speech means that government cannot restrict independent political expression by nonprofit corporations, <coughs> for-profit corporations, labor unions, or other corporate bodies. In the Speech Now case, also in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional to limit the amount of money an individual, corporation, or other group may contribute to an independent expenditure-only committee or to limit the expenditures <coughs> of such committees, super PACs. This type of uh, committee is prohibited from contributing directly to political candidates but can spend as much as they like as long as it's not coordinated with campaigns. Both of those decisions, Citizens United and Speech Now, built on a long line of earlier court decisions holding that as corporate persons, for-profit and non-profit corporations, as well as labor unions, possess First Amendment rights. Finally, I want to say a word about the amount of money we're talking about. The organization Open Secrets estimates that in 2012, $6.3 billion was spent on presidential and congressional campaigns, including the um, uh, PAC uh, funding. Uh, that's about one-seventh the amount that the federal government spends each year on foreign economic and military aid, about one-twelfth the amount the federal government spends each year on food stamps. Uh, so a big chunk of money relative uh, to the government uh, uh, structures that it is helping to shape. <coughs> okay, now we'll turn to our panel. Uh, first question, please begin by introducing yourself and the commitments and identities that shape your approach to money and politics, including your relationship to a religious tradition or traditions. And you can speak in whatever order is most comfortable. Or maybe I'll make it quick and say, for the first question, we'll go across this. Uh, I'm, I must have misread the invitation. I thought this was about the Second Amendment. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, I came tonight because of the issue, but also because I haven't been back to Harvard in a while, and I had a great time here teaching in this room. I did a course on faith and politics. Pluralism was a topic over dinner. We talked about a big commitment here. So let me say, you, you reminded me of something at the Kennedy School when I first taught this course. So I went around the room the first time to see who was taking faith in politics. Uh, and they all testified who they were and why they were there. And it turned out my most devout religious student in that first course turned out to be uh, a very, very committed black church young kid. Uh, I'm here, this is the Kennedy School. I'm here because of my commitment to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I'm a born-again Christian. This course will give glory to God, hallelujah, at the Kennedy School. The woman next to him, we could all hear her say, oh, shit. Um, and she said, I'm a feminist, lesbian, agnostic. I'm here to give this one more chance. So everywhere in between, we had these courses on faith and politics. Uh, uh, so let me just do a framework uh, quickly in the two minutes. There are two the two most important political facts in American life are both also moral and religious issues. Number one, 
the changing demographics of this country so that in two decades we will no longer be a white majority nation. We'll be a majority of minorities. Number two, the growing economic inequality in this nation. Those two facts are related and those two facts are underneath every political issue in this country and they're both moral and religious questions. <clears throat> okay. Over to you. Okay. Here we go. I'll take this side. Um, good evening. My name is uh, Reverend Mariama White Hammond. I am, as was mentioned, um, well, it's interesting. I have a, a number of identities and a number of communities. They don't all, they're not all of my communities are always happy and in love with each other, but um, they are all part of who I am. Um, I am ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, which is a Christian denomination that is known for being um, fairly good on many social justice issues, but not, not all. Um, there are still some issues, particularly around uh, sexuality that my church is still conservative about. We have a beautiful don't ask, don't tell policy. It's challenging and frustrating, um, but uh, that is that is one of the communities in which I work and serve. I'm also Generation X um, on the cusp of the millennials. Um, and so like many people just in general, but particularly folks, um, uh, those of us who grew up in, in an age of postmodernism, um, I left the church at one point in my life and found my way back through liberation theology. Um, ironically, I found I grew, grew up in the AME church, which is the same tradition as James Cone, but I found my way back to the church through um, Catholic social teaching and the liberation theology tradition of um, Latin America. In fact, my mother was here at HDS, and I would go. I was in the library with her reading um, the the works of uh, Asco Romero and, and um, Bartolome de las Casas, so that's another part of my identity. Um, I'm also in the hip-hop generation. I believe in keeping it real, but I'm also a feminist womanist. That has made many interesting moments in my life. Um, and I am a climate or ecological justice activist. Um, and within that, I, I say, uh, for me, climate is probably the most pressing issue of our time, um, mostly because I believe it is our deadline um, to get ourselves together. Um, I believe that te technology is necessary but insufficient. It will not save us. And if we do not transform together, we will drown collectively. Um, and you probably figured out that I'm black. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that that will also, uh, that's also an important part of my identity that i uh, talk about at some point. <clears throat> Thank you. Good turn. <laughs> I'm Nadine Mazin. I'm a Cambridge City Councilor. I hadn't thought about talking about age, but I'm a millennial. <laughs> Just like getting old rapidly type of millennial. <laughs> Thinking about my cartilage a lot. <laughs> rapidly eroding. <laughs> um, you know, I, I ran on an interesting platform, including, uh, well, I think it's interesting, including uh, self-imposed term limits and a commitment not to take uh, special interest money uh, from real estate developers, or really from any special interest. And, and the response to that has been super interesting, by the way. Well, isn't a neighborhood group a special interest group? So why do you take their money? Those are the actual people giving me actual money from their actual <laughs> earnings. Um, those are the electorate. Uh, and, and from a, a religious perspective, as a Muslim, 
there is a principle in the religion that is so basic and so comprehensive that I'm surprised that we're not talking about it every day. It's Farud's Kafeya. It is um, a communal obligation or sufficiency. And uh, in uh, the premise of the religion, if certain uh, obligations of the society are not being met by the government or by uh, uh, civil society players, it is incumbent upon each Muslim to drop some of what they're doing to establish this fault, this requirement. Uh, and so I believe that with uh, racial bias in, a just, in our justice system, the bedrock, our justice system, the bedrock of how we uh, function and how we adjudicate, with uh, money in our politics, with politicians we're not that fond of. I mean, if you could go beyond the law and just talk about who we have in the spotlight and the ego-driven behavior mm -hmm. and the self-serving behavior. Um, and you know that there is an obligation uh, to do this work. So uh, I have a deep interest in campaign finance reform from that perspective, from a this is obvious perspective. Um, and in greater public participation, which I spend, I think, a great deal of my time fomenting and training uh, to the greatest extent I can. I'm uh, Arya Clapper. One of my students, uh, Ellie Fisher, has a sort of Facebook ritual in which he calls out, and he's gotten many other people now, to call out anybody who ever begins a paragraph, particularly about politics, by saying, as an Orthodox rabbi. <laughs> um, uh, the idea being that one should never uh, make claims about what, uh, that one, either one has authority as a rabbi or that one's religion says anything specific um, on the topic. Um, so what I would say is that I, have a I think through a certain mode of discipline which cares very much about law and also understands the limits of law, um, that I also come to this uh, through a deep appreciation for classical political theory and its uh, skepticism about utopias. Um, and with both of those, I also um, should say that one of the interesting things about um, thinking through Orthodox Judaism about issues like this is that Orthodox Judaism has almost nothing to say about them. And the reason for that is that Jewish tradition has, throughout its, uh, the last several thousand years of its history, never really had occasion to influence anybody outside its own community. And so now there's a really exciting opportunity, which is to try and think about what would happen if you use Jewish tradition to think about a, broad, a, a pluralistic society, and which really, um, to me, for the, probably the first time in history, in which Jews have the opportunity to participate in a pluralistic society as Jews and as equals. Uh, that, to me, that's an amazing thing, and so I guess the underlying thing I would say is that despite the classical political science, the skepticism about utopianism, uh, that one of the things I come through is certainly with a tinge of American exceptionalism. <coughs> Okay, so about my identities, I don't actually know who I am. I'm still trying to find out. I'm a Buddhist monk, but I'm also trying to find out what it means to be one. And what interests me about today's topic relates to my interest um, in the intersection between economic and social progress and how religion fits into it. And also, how, like, the kind of question that we are asking, um, what makes us whole? And what is 
a just society or what is a good society. And for this, like, I draw a lot from Buddhism, in which there is a definition of the world as some, something not just physical but also psychological, as us being part of that world, composed of emotions, feelings, and perceptions and thoughts. So, and I'm not very familiar with what has been happening here in the US, but I'll try my best. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Jeff Clements, as uh, the professor said at the beginning. I'm also, uh, in addition to other identities, chair of the Board of Free Speech for People, and would like to thank Free Speech for People and the Harvard Divinity School for gathering us together for this important conversation. John Bonifaz, our president and co-founder, is there, and beside him, Stephanie Sanchez, board member. So thank you both for making this happen. And um, thanks to all of you on this panel. It's quite an honor and an um, intimidating honor uh, for me. Um, 30 years ago, uh, I was Wayne Divinity School or law school. and. Uh, ended up with law school, and as I, as I said to my friend Matt over here, I wasn't still not sure I made the right choice, um, but I think I did, uh, largely um, because I see them now coming together, the, uh, the, the sort of my, my, my faith and my work, and um, that's really only happened the last five, six years, since the Citizens United decision, in fact, and I came to that not with any faith, um, perspective at the time, although I had a faith perspective, I wasn't conscious of it being anything to do with Citizens United, money and politics. I came to it as a constitutional lawyer, as someone who'd um, both been in law enforcement, uh, working on things like the tobacco litigation in the 90s, um, in chief of the Public Protection Bureau trying to enforce the uh, laws uh, on the environment, civil rights, health care consumer protection, all kinds of economic laws, and as a private lawyer uh, in a large firm in Boston representing many large corporations. Um, so I had a, a, a perspective uh, when I last uh, returned to private practice from the Attorney General's office in 2009 that there was an issue with corporations and money and was going to write an article about it that turned into a brief in Citizens United and led me down this road. So I would say lawyer, uh, and I'll get to the faith a little later in the conversation, and um, citizen are my identities that I'm conscious of at the moment in addressing these issues. Excellent. I told the uh, panelists beforehand that we were going to strive uh, to do something new in politics by having an interruption-free zone, and we're doing great with our uh, uh, everybody speaking for just the right length. Uh, our next question is, uh, and we're going to go the opposite direction this time, and then we'll start from the middle. Uh, uh, how do your religious commitments shape your participation as a citizen? Is political participation a religious obligation? To what extent should religious values shape political choices? In what ways is it appropriate for religious organizations, as distinct from religious individuals, uh, uh, to get involved in politics? Yeah, well, that's, that's a big, big number of questions. I think, um, you know, I, I uh, 
short answer, yes. I think we all bring our whole humanity, who, who we are, to our, all of our, our, our existence, including our political existence, including our, our uh, involvement in politics or anything else. And it, you don't separate faith or other perspectives when you are acting in that sphere. Um, just personally, I, I, I'll leave the question about religious organizations to those who are, are more involved in religious organizations. Um, though I will um, now confess to uh, studying uh, and, and being a lay minister in the Episcopal Church, uh, which has something that's happened over these past six years after being raised as a Unitarian. Um, and I, as I said, I, when I did this work, um, and co-founded Free Speech for People and American Promise and had the book out. This, this work has taken me across the country to probably 40 states now. And um, I, have, I have found a fascinating intertwining of how I see our problem as a constitutional struggle, a chapter in the struggle of America to um, live up to that promise of uh, we are all created equal. Um, which is the fundamental truth as I see it in Christianity, that we are all created equal. And that structures that impose um, uh, uh, privilege based on wealth, distinctions based on wealth, um, build up power structures that are used against those without wealth are um, not only unconstitutional, but sinful. And, and what I understand Jesus to have been working to break down those kind of barriers. So um, I came to this as, a, as an American citizen thinking we are in a constitutional struggle about money and politics, uh, w whether we are equal or whether wealth decides how much citizenship you have. I still believe that. I also believe um, we are in something of a moral crusade uh, to renew our, our nation, and that has faith elements, of course. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Thank you. So for me, I would start with saying, um, talking about this idea of relationality that informs um, my understanding of whether we should, I don't know, get involved or participate in politics. And we could always ask, what does it mean to participate in politics? What is political participation? To what extent do we participate? But when we bring in this idea of relationality where we find ourselves in a wave of relationships, and from it, like, one example would be the case of King Asuka, where after the war of Kalinga, like, he was regretting the fact that he killed many people, and also the fact that um, it's not just killing people, but also uh, relatives of people who died, like they are suffering. Like wh when someone you love is suffering, it's not, and you're not happy about it. So the way I see like getting involved in politics or other ways of social engagement is like, because it affects us in one way or another. And that connects with this, with this notion of interdependence, how we find ourselves in conditions that may not be of our own making, but at the same time, like we also are act actively participating in it. And 
maybe if we can go back to like countries that are traditionally Buddhist, like it's, it has been debated whether like Buddhists should engage in politics, and it's there seems to be a contradiction between social change and individual enlightenment, mm -hmm. and one way they could get out of it is resorting to violence in the form like religious and ethnic identity. Another way is what I mentioned about like, because we are part of the universe that we share and we are in a web of relationships, like we need to take care of those issues. Like, yeah. Thank you. Um, so I think that unless one adopts an entirely selfish uh, posture, which is difficult within most religions, so then you have to do things for other people, and it's very hard not to see politics as a way of shaping every, the lives of everyone, everyone around you. So I don't know that I see any particular obligation to engage more in politics than in various other ways of making the lives of the people around you better, but I can't see how you could exclude politics from that realm um, either. Um, and I guess one way of framing that is that I come from a tradition that would see political participation as an obligation, but that recognizes that we have many, many obligations in life. And it doesn't mean that everybody has the specific obligation to engage in politics um, at every particular time. Um, granted, the centrality of religion in my life, and I think in the lives of, of many people who consider themselves seriously religious, I think it should be obvious that religious values shape political choices. And that among those choices is the question of what, when one chooses to seek to impose one's choices on other people democratically or not. Right? That itself is a religious choice. Under what issues do you think freedom of conscience is more important? Under what issues do you think autonomy is more important? And that comes up in a whole realm of issues that are uh, currently being um, kind of subject of controversy in the United States. Um, I think, because I, I don't think there's any reason that religious organizations should not be involved in politics. Um, because if you're, uh, as long as, I would say, um, there are appropriate legal caveats, but I think really is a bigger issue, which is that there are two things that affect the translation from religion to political action. One is that politics is always a series of choices among lots of different issues and priorities and compromises and things like that. And it's even if you think that your religion has a very, very clear position about this issue, the notion that your religion has a very, very clear position about how you balance this issue against others should always be complicated. And secondly, that there's always a question of ends and means, and you should acknowledge that other people would um, use the same, other people might share your ends but think that different means get there, and it's unlikely that your religion tells you the means. So, for example, I support the existence of organizations such as Uri Lissetic, which is a liberal orthodox social justice organization, even though I disagree with many of his things, and I would probably also support the existence of Jews for Guns, even though I would also um, disagree with it just, um, just as strongly, because I think religious identity should be expressed politically, but one shouldn't think the religion determines it. I think the uh, experience of American Muslims from a political perspective is interesting to trace because there's been like three epochs in American political experience just in the last 20 years or so. And in the first, as I was growing up, I found the uh, jurists, of which there are many, uh, vociferous and uh, interesting uh, 
individuals uh, across academia throughout the U.S. Uh, making fatwas, talking, and by the way, fatwa is not a scary thing for those of you who aren't familiar, it's just uh, making a, some kind of religious pronouncement about what's okay, and, uh, uh, and saying basically, politics is probably extremely messed up, you shouldn't participate. Right, you're, you're gonna be bombing someone, you're gonna be paying taxes, and so probably shouldn't participate, and to the extent you have to pay taxes, be a good citizen, but don't, you don't have to like it. You know, I, at least you're supporting the good things and try to do as few of the evil things as possible. And that was the kind of simplistic, I think, approach that a lot of American Muslims took to organizing and focused on building mosques, as opposed to building, for example, civic centers or even schools. Uh, then we got to post 9-11, we have to reclaim our identity. Who are all of these people who have sprung up telling the world who Muslims are? And we're not even telling people who Muslims are. Uh, so we've got to then have some kind of impulse to participate. The, the fatwa, the fatwas went away and they were replaced by pure pragmatism. Let's go to Bush because he'll meet with us and not to Gore because he won't meet with us. Maybe that was actually the difference. You don't think about that in that election between Gore winning and losing was actually the Muslim vote and the fact that Al Gore, for whatever reason, refused to meet with Muslim uh, leaders. Like, absolutely categorically refused to meet with Muslim leaders. Why? Why? Why not do that when there's a large Muslim population in Florida, for example? Uh, of course, Muslims following Bush was also catastrophic and pragmatism is not a great idea. Uh, so, 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 so then you have this generation now of millennials, Muslim and non-Muslim, who have a deep uh, yearning for social justice for altruism, and it's that yearning, I think, um, that is driving people towards, and I want to just briefly say, uh, uh, towards the idea of the religious organization as the anchor for social change, that it has to be more than the spiritual drive and the spiritual anchor, it has to also be this special place that we defend, because it is increasingly harder to have brick and mortar spaces, it is increasingly harder to convene across all of these draws on our attention, and we would like to do so responsibly to have an impact on our world, successful or not. So I think, um, yeah, so it, th this question for me was, um, there was never a question of not engaging because I grew up in a church tradition that it, we just never asked this question. When I found that the people were like debating over that, I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. It never occurred to me that it, it wasn't. Um, so I mean, I think the, 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 the way I'll say it is, um, my understanding is our one of our central tenets is to love our neighbor as ourself, and I look at government as the space of our collective agreements, and how would I not participate in those collective agreements, um, especially if I think they therefore mean I'm not actually loving my neighbor as myself, right? Um, you know, I say all the people who are against healthcare should get a big tattoo across their face that says, do not resuscitate, because if I get into an accident, I don't want people looking for my insurance card. I want you to help me first and figure that out later, right? Um, so I, why would I want that not to be available to everybody else? So I think, for me, the other piece, um, and I see this even more as I've entered into ministry, is that um, the relationship between personal and social transformation is so close. So as an example, I say to folks all the time, people who say, I believe in marriage. I do too. I love my husband and I, I am really sad when there's the number of folks in our, in our, even in our congregation that experience divorce. It's a horrible and painful thing for people, even if it kind of works out well. But I, when I look at what destroys marriages in our communities, so much of it is financial. 
that how could I not talk about living wage? Right? I can't say that I they care about these things when I see many policies which people are saying are disconnected, but I, I experience them as very connected when you look at how it plays in real people's lives in real time. Folks who can't find jobs for one and two years, you know how much stress that puts on families? So if you're, you know, so for me, there, there's no disconnect between those things. Um, and so I have to engage on both sides. So <clears throat> I learned from my colleagues in the first question, I should have said more about my identity and commitment. So I'm from Sojourners, which is a magazine and a movement and a network that tries to put faith into action for justice. You also mentioned your ages. I just went to my 50th high school reunion, and the people there were really old. <laughs> a lot of people brought their grandparents along. It was really strange. Plus, I get to see here in a panel, and this impressive young leader next to me, I met as a little girl when he used to stay in her house. So you have that perspective over the years. So here's what I've learned about this over the years. I believe in the separation of church and state, but that does not mean the segregation of moral and religious values from public life. Dr. King is our best practitioner of that, as he often said, Bible in one hand, Constitution in the other hand. And it means always looking for texts that, that relate. Here's two. One text is from a police officer in a police helicopter flying over Tulsa looking down at a man named Terrence Crutcher. And he said, that looks like a bad dude. Something he wouldn't have said about me or my big, strong, tall, son, college baseball player, or my younger son, as big as him, going to high school. But he said it about Terrence Crutcher. Here's the second text. Romans 2.11 says, God shows no partiality. The first text shows how racial partiality is throughout our policing and criminal justice system. The second for this text is wealth, Citizens United, cemented the wealth partiality not just in our economic system, educational, but in our political decision-making. Wealth partiality is at the core of what's wrong with the issue we're talking about tonight. Wealth partiality. Okay, now we get to the heart of our topic, money and political speech. And we're gonna do speech first. Why is speaking an important part of politics? What can we do to ensure that everyone, regardless of wealth or status, can make their voices heard? Are there ideas or practices from your faith traditions that shape your answer? And this time we're gonna start with Rabbi Clapper. We're gonna to go to the left and then loop back around. Um, okay, so I find it very hard to imagine what politics would be without speech or other forms of expressive acts. So I don't, can't imagine politics without it. And I come from and prize a deliberative tradition, um, which means that you make decisions by talking to each other and hearing each other's ideas. And I think we can all understand very simply that if you have a deliberation in which 
one, you know, some people get to have much more high-powered microphones than others, uh, they will drown the other people out. And you can't have genuine deliberation. And so the, the, I think a simple metaphor for thinking about money in politics is whether, you allow, whether what you're doing is allowing some people to drown other people out um, or not. Um, I do think that um, Jewish tradition, like every other tradition, probably has its moments where it has its mechanisms which people can become heroic for thinking about this is how we ensure that everybody speaks. I think the one people most enjoy is the notion that at some point there was a tradition that anybody at any point could stop any relig a religious service and bang on the table and nobody was allowed to go on worshipping until they, until they were heard. Which is very nice, but it existed for a few centuries in, a small, in some sections of Europe. Uh, to me, the really powerful resource that, um, two powerful resources that Jewish tradition has. One is that really we don't ever ban criticism of the law. Right? We require obedience, but we never ban criticism of the law. And the second is that we have an, over, an overwhelming desire of universal literacy and legal fluency, and that our religious ideal is that every member of the community be involved in making the law. And, all right, and that the way the law is made is by conversation about it, and that it's a, a primary religious duty for everyone to be constantly engaged in conversation about the law, and to make sure everyone has the resources and the education to do that. Um, and that, I think, figuring out how you can translate that into an American pluralistic context is a great challenge. <coughs> okay. So I agree with you in saying that like we can't imagine politics without speech. And also in Buddhism there is this idea that speech comes after thought, like we think and we act and we speak. So I mean there is that whole process of envisioning before like we are deciding to speak. And also, um, there seems to be a contradiction. Let's say in Buddhism, there is this emphasis on right speech, which is one of the fa factors of Noble Eightfold Path. Um, that basically says that we are not to say other words that can harm other people or can harm us, ourselves, and other people. And where does that, the question is, where does that fit in with like, free speech? Like, and who gets to decide what is right and what's wrong speech? Um, I don't still have an answer to that. I'm trying to find out. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, the, I guess the question of speech I'd, I'd begin <coughs> with is, um, Rabbi Klopper mentioned deliberation. I think that's essential. Democracy is a deliberative um, way of government. You speak. But part of speech is also listening, and part of wise government in a democracy is ensuring that there's both listening and speaking opportunities. I, I'm from Concord, and we've been having a town meeting. We've been having town meeting for about 100 years before the British came in 1770 or 1775. And every citizen stands up and gets the same amount of time, and there's listening. <coughs> and, and, and then we decide, um, as, in, as in other democracy spaces. And so I think there's something essential to speech, in the, I mean, something, something essential in deliberative democracy about speech, but also listening, but it's also fundamentally human, you know, and it, and it does relate to this equality and this um, notion that 
everyone has the same right to be heard. You don't decide someone's smarter or someone's had better experience or someone has more, more money. Everyone has a chance to be heard and that we all benefit from that. It's not just like a personal right, it's also a social good that we get the best deliberative opportunities and information. And so we'll talk about money, but just a, a word in the next question, I think, but a word about corporations. That fundamental human aspect is missing in, in Citizens United, where we, we not only lose the notion of speech, because now expenditures of money is called speech, and, and, it, and that's a disconnection from that human act of listening, thinking, then expressing, and then hearing back. It's, it's deployment of power is what I would think of it as. And then you get to global corporations, where by definition, and again, I've represented corporations, this isn't anti-corporate, by definition under corporate law, uh, there, there is no deliberation in the larger social sphere. It's an expenditure that is about <coughs> maximizing profit. If it isn't, the shareholders will get a new CEO to come in and make it so. So um, speech, I think, is human. It's deliberative, it's listening, it's many things, but it's not money in corporations, which we'll get to. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> uh, the, the first part of the question, or the part of the question I'll answer first, uh, how do we ensure that everyone has a chance to be heard? It's a collective obligation. Um, uh, there's no other way than for all of us to, uh, to protect one another. Um, and and what, what I call it in our advocacy groups, we, we've fomented a couple of advocacy groups for informal organizing to understand how informal organizing can win when lobbying and formal organizing usually wins the day in most cases. Um, we call it Ouija board democracy. If everyone has their hand on the Ouija chip and you know if someone is faking the magic. You know if someone is pushing too hard and it's usually that you're allowed to push hard enough in, in uh, commensurate to the size of your hands, right? Which would be your experience or the amount of homework you've done or some other thing. Um, but uh, instead what we have in politics and what we have in society uh, is people who are uh, silver-tongued and, and they're strong because they can make an argument irrespective of whether the argument is sound. And in fact, it has now become an art, the art of debate, which in the old days of adab, in the Islamic tradition of character, of akhlaq, uh, that you would, uh, you would not want to debate because it doesn't have any intrinsic value. You're actually... Um, hurting the process and, 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 as was said over here, hurting yourself. You're saying words that hurt yourself. You're hurting your own spiritual and socially just uh, opportunities and anchoring and grounding, and humans are very easily ungrounded. We never know, for example, if we're losing weight until you have to change the belt size. That's a true thing about human beings, by the way. So, so you go adrift uh, because you engage in these practices, and the only cure is when the society can push back regularly, consistently, and deliberately um, uh, in order to, uh, I guess, protect everybody's mutual opportunities. Uh, and then lastly, I'll say about Islam that there are, uh, in the scripture, in the Quran, in the stories, there are didactic lessons, and they're not just supposed to be trivialized for children's uh, cartoons on the matter or in Sunday school. Uh, in, instead, the fact is that we learn how to speak truth to power from these stories. We learn that uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, in a soft-spoken way, this is unjust, and then only built power 
out of qawlin layilin, out of those soft words to then uh, evoke social justice and real revolution later through uh, the just backing of the religion and of the community. So I think, uh, I, I, as, even as I listen to this, I, there's a piece of me that says, oh, of course, speech is like foundational, it's super important. Um, but I do want to note that I think there, there are some real challenges around um, how, our, at least I can speak for Christianity, works and how I think it sometimes plays it out. So we, we, we worship who we believe to be a perfect um, man who embodied God. And there are tendencies, I believe, at times to desire that to exist again. Um, and so I think as an example, in my church, for instance, we um, have a polity that says that there's supposed to be this deep balance between the lay and the clergy. It sometimes happens, but a lot of times it doesn't happen as it should, right? Um, and so um, there are ways that when power is up for grabs, people start grabbing for it often. Um, and I think my concern is both within um, the church, we struggle to figure out how we're actually supposed to get this done. And even in our own small communities, we struggle to really think about how we're going to share power. Um, and so then I think we walk out into the larger world, not in my opinion, with enough tools to really actually answer what would real democracy look like, especially real democracy look like to the tune of 300 million people trying to figure out how to come to something together. So I think one of our biggest challenges is that um, while I believe in many of the principles of the Constitution, it was written at a time when there was no intention for everyone to participate. In fact, there was a clear sense that some people didn't, weren't worthy of participation, they weren't smart enough, they weren't whatever enough. And so it was a conversation between a small number of people. And the concern that I have is do we have the right facilitation technology in place, the right governance systems in place, to actually have a dynamic conversation of 300 million people. And I don't think we do. And some of us even, I think, who would say we're progressive, we're trying to move things forward, I don't think we've thought creatively enough about how we would structure systems that allow real engagement and deep speech. Speech, uh, this is not just about TV ads. I live in Washington, D.C. Let's get practical. It's about who gets to talk, who gets listened to, and what's the conversation of decision makers. Your senator, John Kerry, once told me he had to raise $20,000 every single day to get reelected to the Senate. Massachusetts, it's a lot more now. So who does he take calls from? Who does he have lunch with? Who are his conversations? He says, they all say with a very sad look on their face, who do they have to have dinner with virtually every night after they finish their work? They don't have time to talk to the people in my tradition who would be most important to talk to because the prophets say that a nation and kings, rulers, are judged not by their gross national product, not by their military firepower, and not by being reelected. They're judged by how they treat the most vulnerable, period. That's clear throughout the Jewish Christian scriptures. And I would probably say the Quran too. 
how you treat the most vulnerable. The system is set up for those making decisions to have no time to talk to the most vulnerable because they have to talk to those who they're dependent upon for their reelection. Remember the text? God shows no partiality. And they have to, to get reelected. So, what about money? <laughs> Do political contributions have a role to play in promoting political speech and participation? Or are they an obstacle to full inclusion? Do your faith traditions have anything to say about Citizens United, Speech Now, or the notion of corporate personhood that underlies these court decisions? And this time we'll start with Nadim Mazen and go to the right and then loop around. So I would say from my vantage point as a city councilor that, that unfortunately uh, for Citizens United, uh, which is already being undermined I think quite a bit in legal discussions, and may be challenged either by constitutional amendment or by review later, some of the premises are shaky, there's not a place for money in politics at all. Um, I think what was said over here is very true. There's not enough time to do all the work. There wouldn't be enough time to do all the work even if uh, we didn't have to run for re-election every two years in Cambridge. Uh, as for the faith tradition, uh, Certainly, I think the faith tradition would never recognize corporate personhood, no, nor would I think this nation at any other time in history, after now or before now. Uh, it's a silly idea, and it's predicated on the loosest interpretations that I think the Supreme Court ought to be embarrassed about, uh, generally speaking, and, and probably will be embarrassed about later. Um, uh, in terms of whether it is okay to give towards political ends, that on the other hand is probably not governed well in Islam. And I'm not a, a jurist or a scholar <coughs> at all, but I would say in Islam it's not embarrassing to have money or spend money or even be opulent to have nice clothes or something like that. But it's infinitely better to spend in the way of God and for the right hand not to know what the left hand has given. Or maybe for the left hand not to know what the right hand has given. But to spend so much you don't even know how much you're spending. And I think that is completely lost, because when I talk to bankers of any faith tradition, they think their faith tradition is already generous enough. And I guarantee you, when I finally get you know, one out of five, one out of seven of them to tell me how much they make and how much they give, it's always embarrassing. And I think the state of the country and of the world is embarrassing in the same way. And it's not that any of us aren't participating in the same way. Some tithe at 20%, some Muslims are paying the full 2.5% of their holdings. It's not of income, of their holdings, their full holdings every year. But most aren't. And most aren't, certainly aren't, going above and beyond as the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did to give away half or all of their wealth in service of basic social justice. And I think that type of giving is political giving. That type of giving is social giving. And anything short of that is not sufficient. So I think um, <laughs> it's interesting, like on the corporate personhood question, um, you know, I've always wanted to ask evangelicals, will Walmart get to go to heaven? Like, it just <laughs> feels like there's nothing in the scriptures that would give us any impression that anything other than individual human souls 
and living things on creation have any standing in our tradition. Um, and so, yeah, I couldn't, I can't even begin to like think that that would be something that Jesus would be okay with. Um, I think the larger challenge is, um, I believe sort of the, the sort of neoliberal capitalism as we have come to see it in America, the American dream is it its own religion. Um, and I it, it, people in faith traditions have had to make decisions about whether they will merge with that faith tradition or critique that faith tradition. Um, and I say it's a faith tradition. I mean, we, I did a vacation Bible school with my um, young people last year, and we sort of named out all the things that make something a religion. It has, you know, it has uh, traditions, it has stories, it has, and really if you look at it, um, there are ways in which um, the American economic system um, that we follow has all of those things. Um, and in many cases, I think our traditions have decided if you can't beat them, join them. But I think there are real reasons to not join because I think that there are real tensions. Um, so, I, I mean, for me, there's just obvious scriptural references to this being a problem. And, and it's not that the Bible says you can't um, have money, but it, it says that if that is how you define yourself and it, and it governs you so much that you cannot follow the other edicts in the scripture, then that ends up being a problem. Um, and I would say the way that money is organizing um, in our politics does not seem to have any alignment with the other central teachings of, of our faith, and so I would have to push back on it um, inherently. Well, Walmart, I get. What about Apple? Hmm? Yeah, you know. So Georgetown is where I now teach faith and politics. So uh, the first course uh, last fall, I talked about money. That's your question here. What about money? Well, when I was in seminary a long time ago, we started by doing a study of the Bible. Every text in the Bible about the poor, about the rich, about money, every text we found 2,000 verses in the Bible about that issue. And then one of my colleagues who's still with us took a pair of scissors and took an old Bible and cut out every text about the poor, about the oppressed, about money. When he was done, the Bible was literally falling apart in my hands. It was in shreds. It was a Bible full of holes. I'd take it out to preach. I would say, brothers and sisters, this is the American Bible from all we've cut out, ripped apart. I told that story in my class, and a Korean student came up to me and said, that's interesting, I'm from Korea, I've never read the Bible. I've never even seen it. I'm gonna think about that. So she, in her paper, her reflection paper, she wrote, so, so I wondered, you said, and all that stuff said that, that God was pretty positive toward the poor. Okay, so I wondered how God felt about the rich. So I Googled it. <laughs> and did you know that God is pretty negative about the rich? <laughs> I Googled it. Now most American Christians would not have that conclusion because they had never thought about it, but she never had seen the Bible. So she Googled it and she read all these texts. And she listened to these texts. You know, camel and I have a needle and, and you know, Timothy, the love of money is the root of all, I think the text says the root of all political evil. I think that's what it says. <laughs> so there is a real negativity 
in the Bible about wealth when other people are suffering. That's, a, that's, a, that's what the text says. I'm an evangelical. That's what the text says. So that brings our tradition to a serious problem with citizens, which in fact cements the power of money over our political decision makers. It's unbiblical. Back to me at the end here. Okay, um, so I'm going to uh, pick up right there, I think, and and say on money. You know, the the does money have a role in politics? Of course, we'll need to have signs, purchase, you know, petitions, whatever. You need some money. The question isn't money; it's where it comes from, who who you know who provides the money and what it gives them. Uh, since Citizens United, there's been over 30 billion dollars spent in elections, um, almost all of that comes from a tiny slice, as I said, less than 1% of, of Americans. Most people don't participate in that at all. Um, so the problem isn't m money, although it is that, uh, in politics. It's, it's a concentration among a very few, and the effect that money uh, results in a massive imbalance of influence. Um, so why is this wrong? Or, or more to the point, actually, first, Citizens United is just one case. I think people have to realize we are in the midst of a real constitutional struggle, case after case after case. And Chief Justice Roberts, in an Arizona case that struck down a public funding mechanism, so one idea is, well, we need money. Let's have it come from all the public and, and get the private money out and the public money in. It couldn't do that because of Citizens United. We're not allowed to get the private money out. But it tried to get a little more public money if there was some one of those outside super PAC attacks so that the publicly funded candidate could at least respond. That was struck down. And Chief Justice Roberts said um, he'd gone on the website of the Arizona Clean Elections uh, Commission. And the website said in order to ensure a level playing field. And Chief Justice Roberts seized on that. And he said, see, level playing field. Why isn't that clear evidence this is unconstitutional? So a level playing field is unconstitutional right now in America. And that's the struggle. It's two different visions of the role of money in politics. Under one vision, they literally use the, the metaphor of a marketplace. And if you think about it, that's the Citizens United vision, a marketplace. Um, if it's a marketplace, we allow inequality. You know, you can buy a yacht. You can, buy, you can go to the marketplace and buy a lot if you have a lot. In democracy, we aren't used to, as Americans, thinking that it's a marketplace rather than the one place in, the, in our country where we're equals, where you come with one person, one vote, you don't get to buy more. Um, and that's the problem we have with money. It's the uh, constitutional struggle we have between these two different visions, marketplace or democracy and republic. I'm skipping this. Uh. Okay, so I'd really love to take that, uh, that uh, metaphor up, but I can't in two minutes, so hopefully the next question. Because uh, I want to do uh, here is make a, a sharp distinction between private money and corporate money. Uh, it seems to me that the fundamental problem with corporate money, which is independent of many of these issues, is that corporations don't have moral agency. It's not that they have more money, it's that they have no moral purpose um, for that money. And since, for better or for worse, um, the vast majority of the disposable income in the United States, even of the middle class and of the poor, is tied up in corporations through mutual funds or stocks or things like that. So what we're essentially doing is outsourcing our political speech to entities that have no moral agency. And that seems to me to be a fundamental wrong, that we should not be taking the, right, the, the 
political speech should be a personal responsibility and outsourcing it to organizations that have no purpose other than their own growth is a fundamental moral wrong. And that I think is the, the deep, deep flow with the Citizens United notion that corporations are people, that they're not people for political purposes because they have no moral agency and politics is a moral, uh, is a moral endeavor. I think there is a second issue with corporations, um, which is familiar to us from the phenomenon of gerrymandering, that what happens in corporations is that all of us put money, the way the financial system is structured, all of us put money into the same corporations, basically. And so it's rigged that all corporate decisions will be made by those who own the most shares. And so actually that is a way in which wealth really drowns out everybody else, because we take the vast majority of the money that could be speech in, speech in the company and we put it into environments where there's a built-in majority for the, um, for the wealthy. Um, so for those two reasons, that's why I want to argue, I think that um, there are deep, deep grounds <coughs> for, opposing, uh, for opposing Citizens United, even if you accepted the marketplace metaphor. Wow, this gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? Uh, uh, the next couple of questions are a bit more specific, so we'll just have two or three of our panelists respond to each one. Uh, many religious traditions include teachings about the community's responsibility to those who experience poverty or face oppression based on race or ethnicity. How do these teachings within your own tradition shape your convictions regarding money, wealth, and democracy? So I think um, what's what's interesting for me is that um, our, the tradition is about both how we live in our time on earth and then um, the hope and expectation of a life afterwards, right? Um, and so for me, there's a couple of things that um, are challenging around money just as a notion in and of itself um, and, and how it connects with uh, poverty, oppression. So our, our first responsibility on which we are judged is our love for God, and then our second is, for, is, is love for neighbor. Um, and so, and I actually think that there, you know, as Jesus teaches us, the two are not disconnected from each other. You couldn't um, love God and not love your neighbor, because in loving God, then you then believe that your neighbor is, a, is part of God's creation, and then there is a necessity to love. So I think, um, the, ch the challenge within our own tradition is the tendency to personalize that situation. It's between me and God, and it's the neighbor that I see right now. And if you live in segregated communities, then your necessity to neighbor, if you define it that small, um, you can do it without ever going outside of your comfort zone. Um, and that is how I think we have, unfortunately, defined it in some challenging ways, and then people give money to missions, right? But it's partially love your neighbor to convert them. Um, so I, I do think that there's a need to do a, a, real, a little, really radical reteaching. And I actually think um, this is a place in which um, Christians reading particularly the New Testament in an anti-Judaic way actually leads us to not even understand our own religion. So we have this tendency to say, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were Jewish, and that's the problem, 
right? When the reality is, the Pharisees, Jesus was Jewish, so he was only going to be in relationship with other people of his own tradition. The problem is not um, about the ethnic or racial composition of those people. The, pro the question is one of power. And what was the relationship between Jesus and those in power? What were his critiques within his own community? Um, so I do think that the racism and anti-Semitism that has pervaded within our own tradition has led to a very narrow re reading of the text in ways um, that let us off the hook from doing the very things that Jesus is very explicit about. Can I weigh in on this? Um, so I have been, um, uh, I was in Washington the other day and I ran to the Lincoln Memorial and, and there's the Gettysburg Address on one side and the second inaugural on the other side, second inaugural address. And the second inaugural address was right at the end of the Civil War, you know, the last 41 days, I guess, before Lincoln was assassinated. And uh, 700 words, and he mentions God 14 times, scripture four times uh, in that 701 words. And this is a man who never went to church, as far as historians seem to be able to tell, but obviously it was, it was devout and trying to give meaning to what the country was going through. And, um, and, 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 I, and I, I've been mulling a lot of those words and those, those references. And, I, and, and to me, it, again, sums up whether we like it or not, we are in a, 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 a struggle for equality. And it's the purpose that we set this country on when we started, and of course it didn't make sense at the time. We had slaves, we had, women were property of, of their husbands. There, there were all these like, discordant things mm -hmm. with what the promise was. And they've just been playing out. And you know, we're, 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 we're only a few generations away from the 700,000 Americans slaughtering each other to settle the question that we can have slavery, we must be equal. Um, and I, I mentioned this in, in a talk in Washington that just last year, you may know, a man named Luke Martin died. His father, just last year he died, his father had escaped slavery and fought in the Union Army. Mm -hmm. That's how close we are in this country to trying to figure out how do we actually be equal. And I think, as Lincoln found, maybe despite himself, as, a, as not a member of any church, uh, scripture and, and that fundamental equality of human beings um, in it uh, creates a certain energy to the unfolding of the American promise as well about that we are created equal and that's going to give us every generation a whole bunch of challenges. So I think in some ways we see race of course still being that challenge but also money and wealth in terms of who gets political power and who doesn't. Okay. Many traditions also include teachings about charitable giving and the responsible use of wealth. How do your traditions shape your views about whether and how people of faith can responsibly use their wealth to advocate for a more just world? Okay, I'll jump into that one. That one. Okay. I've been talking to a number of philanthropies uh, around the country and how Charitable giving often is around victims and symptoms. And their purpose is to almost be a cover for the injustice 
of the wealth that was created that set most of them up. But now some philanthropists are talking about transformation, which is a very different thing. And the biblical tradition, the God of the Bible is not a God of charity. The God of the Bible is a God of justice. The word oppression is in the Bible countless times, long before Karl Marx. It's about systems that are set up and that oppress those who are poor. And while we're on the Supreme Court, most people don't know that right after slavery, there was a federal act that gave full citizen rights to slaves. But the Reconstruction, Rutherford B. Hayes and the Supreme Court overturned that. What was the 64 Civil Rights Act was already done right after slavery, and you had a fusion party uh, in North Carolina uh, where you had white non-slave-holding mountaineers joining with black slaves, former slaves, to create a whole new government. Uh, senators, governor, and congressmen. And because that was working, not not working, working, white militiamen came in with this with this uh, decision in Washington and reconstruction to deny citizenship. This is about who's a citizen and who's not. And these aren't just old questions. When a kid in Ferguson one night during a protest says to me, I still feel like I'm treated like three-fifths of a person. It's Ferguson last year. This is about citizenship. Who's a citizen and who's not? And the Supreme Court has acted against the citizenship of people of color again and again and again. Um, okay, well I guess just to um, put some excitement into it, the God of my Bible is a God of both charity and justice. Uh, and I think that we, we should, um, we should you know, keep both of those ideas in there. Um, one of the things that most interests me, there is a, um, an Orthodox Jewish tradition that one does what one would call tithing uh, right, which in Hebrew it's maaser, and so one of the most beautiful legal questions one gets is, what sorts of things can you spend your tithing money on? Because you don't tithe to an organization, you don't tithe, there's no church that you tithe to, it's just an obligation to privately spend your money. So, for example, is it legitimate to spend your money lobbying for increasing access to health care? Or is it legitimate, right, so that, right, that, those are, I think that that's an important framework for um, for th for thinking about the um, the issue. What really is charity? A cynical way that one of my very liberal friends framed it is that we have two concepts. One is called tzedakah, which is charity. Another is called chesed, which is usually translated as loving kindness. So we said tzedakah is when you give your own money. Chesed is when you argue that other people should give their money. I think that one you know that one, one does have to maintain those things. Um, those ideas. What I want to say, what I want to say um, in a broad framework is this. From a virtue perspective, if you were to ask me if I have somebody who's really wealthy, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, um, and they wanted to spend all their money trying to bring about um, social transformational change in this community by advocating for positions that I agreed with, I would think, wow, that's an enormously virtuous thing to do. He could spend his money living a sybaritic life and instead he's spending his money arguing for campaign finance reform. That seems to me like an amazing thing. I think that has to be balanced against the fear that in a democracy that his or her use of that money is going to drown out other people. But I don't think that we should assume that um, the devotion of people 
um, to political causes is necessarily a negative. And there's one particular thing which I think is really important about that, which is that money is very useful for bringing ideas that would otherwise be marginalized to the attention of large groups of people. I remember being very inspired um, a couple of years ago reading a book about somebody who basically spent his whole life doing nothing but trying to fight for the genocide convention to be passed by the United, by the, the anti-genocide convention to be passed by the United Nations. Now that took money and threw everything he had into it, not enough. Um, it took many, many years and maybe it wasn't a good idea after all. Um, so I think that we should frame it that way, recognize that um, that there are lots of ways in which using money for political speech is a virtue. Um, there are ways in which um, private virtue can conflict with public good. And I would rather frame it that way as under what circumstances does the private virtue of investing in what one really cares about conflict with the public good of ensuring that everybody has a voice rather than assume that the use of money, the use of money for political ends is in itself um, an evil. Can I say the rabbi is right that what I, what I should say is the God of the Bible is not just a God of charity. Charity is often what leads to justice, but as my pastor friend knows, often churches say there's social justice ministries, and really it's social service that they're talking about, not transformational justice. So I agree with you. So I think one quick distinguish is if you made your money unjustly, charity also doesn't clean that money. So if you didn't pay your workers, and that's how you made all your money, then giving money to like after school programs doesn't fix the fact that if you had paid those parents more, then maybe they could afford to pay for the after school program and you wouldn't have to give them a grant. So just being clear that the money has to be made justly too. <laughs> uh, I wanna say brief, briefly about the money in, in, in politics. I said earlier categorically that money has no place in politics, but what I really mean is that type of money. It's not the same language or the same word. We should create a new word for when money appears in large chunks or is traded as a speculative instrument. It's not the same thing. Uh, what I'm talking about is that money. That's not okay. But $27 contributions or uh, a tax-funded campaign finance reform project, that's a different thing. That's, that's uh, the will and lifeblood of the people flowing in your direction and it's not it's just not in the same mind space or social space in, in today's uh, political mm -hmm. uh, marketplace next question in the united states today members of certain religious traditions face stigma stigma hostility and violence what policies are needed to ensure that members of these traditions are able to participate freely and fully in politics? And do members of less stigmatized traditions have a role to play in expressing solidarity? Can I just very briefly say um, the, po the best policy is the First Amendment, which protects freedom of religion, and that all Americans have an obligation to stand with those who are being discriminated or marginalized based on their religion. And I think certainly all, all faiths have a duty to stand together in that, but so do all Americans if we believe in our First Amendment. I, I wanted to chime in and say this is a totally crazy time to be Muslim and be in office. Uh, there is a project in Massachusetts uh, that runs around libeling any Muslim that gets to a certain level of leadership. And 
has succeeded in running almost every leader that reaches that level out of town. It's usually political leadership. Sometimes it's social justice organizing or really organizing of any kind. And you find yourself on a Jihad Watch website or on Breitbart or on some other place, and these people are raising more money than all of our Muslim institutions combined. And in many cases, these disreputable organizations are raising money from reputable organizations and from reputable individuals who can't ferret out the difference between the securitization and anti-terror talk and the people who are using that talk to blanket, uh, discriminate against, and to truly destroy the professional uh, work of uh, uh, anyone who calls themselves Muslim and is proud of their identity. So I think most people don't realize that it's that organized and it's that, it's that deep, but I was in for one term and as soon as I wasn't a fluke, as soon as I was in for two terms, there were tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars behind a campaign to call me a radical extremist by association, by a million other things, none of which hold up if you actually read the article. It's fun to read the article. I encourage you to do it. Look up Nadim Mazin, Hamas on the Charles. Share it with your friends. Um, Right, but, but these, these institutions really exist and what I would love to see, there's so many allies who came to my aid. The council came to my aid and said this is crazy with the resolution. I didn't need a resolution, it was <coughs> wonderful. People came at public comment and all of this without me asking, which was incredible because my predecessors who had been run out of town did not have that benefit and were not in the public eye. It's their private professional careers that were destroyed. What I would love to see is that extending into the support of Muslim politicians or Muslim uh, social justice or Muslim civics organizations with your dollars, especially if you're super wealthy. Uh, I happen to have a charity, so you can look up Jetpack, Justice Education Technology Pack. We're just trying to train people to care about government. They can run for government later. Uh, but but uh, uh, these organizations are surrounded and destroyed uh, in a very systematic way, and it's made it very difficult to work uphill just to get to the fights so that we can work uphill with others and be good allies on those fights. Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison was the first Muslim member of Congress, and he took his oath of office on the Quran. Listen to Keith's stories about what happened to him and still comes after him. And not do members of less stigmatized tr traditions, but that's where, most importantly, the support has to come for people like Keith. In other words, you know, if we... I'll just be controversial here. One of the things that, that most, that most uh, appalls me is when some people in my evangelical tradition in an election like this define religious liberty as their ability, more as their ability not to have to hire LGBTQ people in their organizations instead of banning Muslims from this country as a policy of a presidential candidate. Defending all the Muslims in the world is less their concern than maintaining their hiring policies. That's a terrible example of this gone wrong. But when we do stand up and alongside and in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, when we are from the majority traditions, that indeed is the most important thing that can be done. Um. So there are a couple of things I think that I'd like to say about that. Uh, one is I, I do think it's clear that all traditions should um, stand up for each other's um, rights to ensure 
that religion doesn't become practically as much as uh, legally a test under the a test under the United States for office. Um, that's why I'm very proud of the cousin of mine who's organizing the Institute for Muslim Jewish Cooperation on these issues. Um, I do think, though, that there is a tendency to be sort of self-congratulatory and believe that this is only a problem from the right um, and that there are real issues going on the other way as well. And I want to highlight two of them. One is intersectionality on the left, which often becomes a way of excluding Jews from participation in liberal politics. Uh, that's, a growing, that's a growing issue across, across the country, especially Jews who are unwilling to identify as anti-Zionist. Um, and secondly, that we're making lots of choices in which I, one can justify, one should understand the cost to embody certain, lib certain liberal beliefs about gender and sexuality, particularly in constitutional law, um, or about death penalty, other issues, which has the effect of practically forcing people who have conflicting traditions to make choices about whether it's at all possible for them religiously to maintain their office. If you heard a vice presidential candidate talking about how he had to decide whether he could hold a public office that would require him to approve an execution, Right? That's a really complicated issue, but, um, and that's an issue where people might feel one way, and then another issue is about whether you can hold a public office that requires you to sign um, gay marriage certificates. But really, they're versions of the same issue, which is the extent to which we want to remove certain positions that are held by, by minority religions um, from, right, from, the, from polite discourse and from the capacity to participate in political discourse, and I think that we should be very sensitive to those as well. I have just one more question. The boundaries of religious communities often cross national boundaries. And most religions include teachings about our moral obligations to all the people of the world, not only those of our own faith or nation. How should these obligations shape our choices about money and politics? I'll, I'll say briefly that one of, one of the premises uh, that I've learned about Islamic social justice is that one should do one's best where they are placed. And that starting local and, 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 and doing that work is super important because the human being yearns for greatness and yearns for change and will often seek that change uh, wherever it's exciting rather than where they are placed or where it is needed and expend much of the... Of the important and uh, scarce resources in their lives to get to that other place before they start the work. Hence the, the, um, the MIT mantra, I'll do that good thing you're asking me to do when I get wealthy later, right? Uh, which I experienced so much uh, you know, a decade ago and, and is still heavily in play in the most elite institutions. I, I'm so busy now, but I'll do that good later. Um, and not to be condescending, I mean, of course, there's wonderful people in every institution, and I'm not, I've been guilty of the same thing. Um, uh, but we also have to balance that, I think, with the fact that exchange rates being as they are, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, the basket of goods and the cost of those goods elsewhere, we, I, we, seem, we need to have some kind of pragmatic balance for what we can do elsewhere. And I think what the question is getting at is that we have a responsibility to all people, and that nationalism and tribalism is is in conflict with religion and with probably with all of our teachings. And so while we start local, maybe even hyper-local, I think there's something to be said for a very deliberate and very calculated giving overseas. And I'm happy to see that that movement of calculated giving is taking root and that we're not just willy-nilly giving to whoever has the best commercials or the most pink or red bands uh, around town. 
Um, that being said, I still think we haven't gotten it right on micro-lending, we haven't got, gotten it right on a host of things that just further enrich the, uh, the, the powers that be within extremely overbuilt financial institutions. We haven't done the basic work of giving overseas in a deliberate way. I would love to think in terms of spiritual practice, where like, um, we are, to use a term from liberation theology, where we are accompanying each other, like accompanying other people who need our help. Like, um, to take on like question number three, where we are helping like other communities in their spiritual practice. So I think like, we can think of that way. Oh, after you, please. Uh, so, I, um, for me, as as a as a person of faith, um, this becomes a challenging and important issue. So, I agree first with what Nadiman said, which is that you do have a responsibility to the people who are right around you. The doing justice five thousand miles away, while not doing it next door, is is certainly a problem, um, and so you always want to make sure that you're doing that. The challenge is that um, I also don't see from my text any recognition of the nation state having to do anything with who is my neighbor and who is not. Um, and so that um, definitely makes me think about sort of does my responsibility stop where this, what, where this nation says my border stops, and I think the, the answer to that is no. That being said, I think we also need to pay attention to ways in which, because of exchange rates, if we're not careful, then our then we end up potentially drowning out other people's speech um, through NGOs and um, organizations that end up having more influence in other countries than the people of those countries themselves. So I think that um, even... Uh, I think that, that we are called to do charity, we are called to, to do justice work, but we are also called to think carefully about how we're doing it in a way that we don't reinforce things that we may not have even thought about, but possibly be, could be coming to play. Okay, I think it's time to open up this conversation. Uh, we are uh, live streaming. Um, I should have welcomed the live stream. Uh, folks at the beginning, uh, and that means uh, that if you have a question, um, you need to wait for someone to come around, looks like it's going to be Aileen, and give you the mic, and I see Carly over there, so. Hi, thank you so much for sharing your really interesting perspectives with us tonight. I have a lot of questions, um, but I will limit myself. Um, my first question is related to the Hobby Lobby case, which I thought we would hear more about tonight, but understand why we didn't, um, which essentially, for those of you who don't know, extended corporate personhood to include corporate religiosity and contributed to economic inequality and exacerbated racial inequality in the United States. So taking that into consideration, I was wondering if you think there should be any limits on religious speech. My second question, very briefly, um, is related to a Pew survey and a PRI survey that shows that millennials are 31% of the electorate, but less than half of them have shown up to vote in the past three presidential elections. In addition, um, almost 40% of millennials are not affiliated with any particular religious community. So I'm wondering how you communicate with this group of individuals. Can I take the Hobby Lobby one? So, um, 
we at Free Speech for People filed a brief in the Hobby Lobby case, just for everyone's um, reference. The uh, Hobby Lobby is a large chain of stores in the country. Uh, it's a large corporation. It employs 13,000 people. It's owned by a family uh, who are the sole shareholders who um, I think, uh, uh, I, I don't think, I, I, I credit them and know they have sincere Christian beliefs that they felt conflicted with uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act's requirement that corporation, large corporations over, that have more than 50,000 employees include in their health plans reproductive coverage for reproductive services. There's a long convoluted you know, question of whether um, that uh, coverage was, was considered abortion or not, but they claimed it was and that they refused to provide that insurance and claimed that um, the requirement that they do so violated the corporation's rights, not just themselves as individuals, but the rights of this corporation that employed 13,000 people. So the court's faced with this question, does a, can a corporation have a religious conscience? And under corporate law, the answer is no. Under the Supreme Court now, the answer is yes. Uh, that Hobby Lobby won that case. And so it raises a host of, of questions and, and implications around that. I think I, I hear Rabbi Clapper to, to um, give a sound and wise reminder to us that we need some accommodations all over the place, including on the conservative side when Christians feel embattled by, by certain things. But I, I, I can't imagine where the line will be drawn if a corporation with 13,000 employees and millions and millions of dollars can take on those Christian obligations and use it to strike down our laws. We now have corporations challenging minimum wage laws. We have corporations challenging all kinds of laws in this country. Hobby Lobby is an extreme example of where this is going if we don't get back to that fundamental line between humans and corporations. Can I take that out? Because this is a great conversation, and I'd look forward to having a much more extended version in a different forum. Uh, I think that it is potentially terrific for corporations to develop religious consciences because the vast majority of our money is going to be tied up otherwise in conscienceless corporations. And if we could have corporations that were really devoted to, um, to these sorts of issues, related, corporations related, devoted to social justice issues, that I think it's very odd that we allow corporations, let's say, to demand that Indiana change its religious accommodation law and yet not allow a single corporation to be accommodated when it, which had, with no practical result at all, but simply to allow a practical workaround of its requirement, right of requirement to give contraceptive coverage. So I, I think that we really, really have to be, yes, there is a, a way in which, you know, corporations can't be allowed to suspend the law any more than individuals can. Um, but I think that on the whole, we would be better off with corp if we were allowed to organize corporations with specifically moral goals. And when you start the next Apple, one of the rules about Apple will be that it will provide, absolutely for all time, provide, provide um, abortion services for all its employees, no matter what the law is. Um, right? And that will be part of its organization. And it will give 10% of its income to charity. And it will advocate for living wage laws, whatever it is. That would be terrific if Apple were organized that way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about the idea that corporations could be, um, have religious beliefs. And, and the, the concern that I have on that is, as a person of faith, we've struggled enough to be accountable to each other um, in small communities. Um, I, I don't see 
as a, something that is diversified across many different states, um, what would be the system of, of um, sacred sharing and teaching and coming to those moral agreements? And so for me, I think that um, all of our faith communities have, have embraced traditions, they're different, but we have sacred texts that we turn to, some of us. All of us have meeting spaces where we bring people together. So for me to call oneself part of a faith, I would want to see that the corporation was committed to all of those things. So I believe in, in, um, in and corporations with the double bottom line and the B Corp movement and all of those things. I think that's great. Um, but I, I, I don't want to mix a corporation and people. I think there's fundamentally living, breathing people who have life. Um, and, and to me, once you go there, it's like, is a robot a person? I mean, I just, I just feel like, um, so I actually wouldn't have had a problem if they had brought the same lawsuit as themselves as individuals. But once they allowed this entity that doesn't have life to be considered <coughs> that way, that's where I had some real concerns. There's a distinction that, uh, Dr. King made about some of this a long time ago that I find helpful here. He said, when we're talking about my family or my church, when we're talking about my faith community, then what we think and believe has to be respected. But once you go into the marketplace, he said, there's a line there, once you enter the marketplace, then, then you don't have and shouldn't have the same protections in the faith community. Now, I want to tell a little story here that when the, the first version of Obamacare came out requiring Catholic organizations uh, to dispense contraceptives, there were a number of faith leaders who had no trouble with contraceptives themselves, but pushed the administration pushed Obama to change, to make a, a workaround on that because we, they, uh, didn't feel that this was a good precedent to force that on the little sisters of, of charity, for example. And so that was changed because of the response of faith leaders who had no issue with contraception but wanted to respect the conscience of those Catholic groups that did and find a workaround. So I think there are workarounds possible, but I'm with King on that line in the marketplace. Once you're in the marketplace, there to me are different sense of rules that, 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 that apply. And I don't want to lose your second question, if I could just speak to that quite quickly. On the nuns, the, the millennials, they're often called nuns because they mark the box saying, what do you affiliate with? They say none. And I love the nuns, I really do. I like the other nuns, too, and when I would go out speaking as a young man at conservative Christian colleges, there'd be two rows of nuns, always in the front row. I said, sisters, why are you here? They would say, well, Jim, this is a very conservative place. We thought somebody should have your back. So I had nuns for bodyguards for years. But the N-O-N-E-S, none of the above, most of them believe in God, they say. They don't want to affiliate because of what religious institutions have done or not done, or said or not said. What they're looking for is moral courage and where their lives and their faith would make a difference in their lives. I find that to be one of the most receptive groups to all the things that we're talking about here. So I love the nuns. I wanted to talk briefly just about the second part of your question, if I can. 
Uh, I totally resonate with what was just said here, and I described it earlier as this yearning for authenticity that is really out there, and I think it's out there across all age groups, but, but the nuns, which I think will be confusing when I borrow that in the future, um, <laughs> but, but the nuns um, uh, certainly have a deep uh, disaffectation, and at the same time, all of us have this kind of scary predilection to trust mass media. I, I know the moment when I switched from an iPhone to a Samsung phone, and now I still have a Samsung several late, uh, years later, and I investigated, and I reached back, and I was like, it was just eight advertisements, eight shiny advertisements, then I did it. If it had been eight for some other thing, I probably would have done that, too. And that is real and dangerous with respect to our future choices and our sense of real self-determination. Um, so when it comes to millennials, I, I go back to this idea, this yearning for authenticity, and I also go back to my prior point for developing an analytic for what's right and, and a common conversation for what we want to achieve together, both of which completely absent, I think, from the conversation and would cause, or from the, the, the state in, in which we operate, and I think would cause more millennials to participate and to make those institutions more mm -hmm. operable and, and more, more uh, successful. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to go to another question from the audience. You, sir? Hi, let me first just say thank you all for uh, holding this panel. I think it's awesome. Thank you for a uh, brief speech for people for putting this together. It's a really a interesting, interesting conversation that needs to be had. So I don't want to belabor uh, corporate personhood um, too much, but I want to explore it a little further. So, um, talking about their communities. So um, who are their communities? Um, when, you know, a relig famous religious tenet is uh, love thy neighbor. So uh, when they act in the interests of their shareholders, aren't they just loving their neighbor? Um, and also uh, are following the law. Um, so there's <coughs> a famous ruling, the 1919 Dodge versus Ford um, ruling said that um, corporations should be responsible to their shareholders, not their uh, employees or customers. So doesn't that become their community? Aren't they just acting in the interest of their community? I'll jump into that, because this has been a big conversation, even at a place like, as you mentioned, the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, finally, our corporation subject to uh, one thing's time frame, quarterly profit and loss statements as a metric versus indigenous people who say decisions we make today are judged by their impact on the seventh generation out. Big difference in time frame there. Shareholders and stockholders, shareholders and stakeholders is another huge conversation. Uh, shareholders, if it's only shareholders, what about other stakeholders like their own employees, their customers, and even the environment as a stakeholder? and the next gen generation. So that's a whole big, honest, serious debate, even amongst CEOs at Davos. And then the third thing is, uh, is the difference in, in, in purpose and profit. Is profit the only motivation, finally, or purpose? And this isn't just some, this isn't some just uh, divinity school thing we wish that uh, Kennedy school people would think about. Uh, <laughs> 
it's really how a new generation of business people that I talk to are not taking the 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 best package for their for their first job. They're, how can they use their skills, their business skills, to make social change in the context where where they are? So that question: Is it all shareholders or stakeholders? Is it quarterly profit losses or is it? So this is a question that's very much at stake, even at a place like Davos every year in Switzerland. Three sentences. A, communities are formed by whole people, not narrow interests. If you had a community of bowlers, right, you don't, that doesn't make it your community that all you're interested in is bowling. And so a community of people are, you know, where the only interest is money is not a real community. And it shouldn't be driven like that. And secondly, a corporation, as it is set up now, is a community where you get votes directly in proportion to your money. Right? There's no deliberation, right? That's exactly it. So that's a terrible kind of community. Uh, to be part of. Even shareholders, it isn't all the shareholders that are listened to. It's the shareholders who have the most money that are listened to. Can I also, also add on, 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 on the context for this conversation, I think is important to bear in mind. We're talking about the Constitution of the United States. So there's a really interesting debate to be had about how, what should corporations be, who should they be responsible to, who are the stakeholders. But the context of corporate personhood as used in Citizens United, Hobby Lobby, and other cases is whether corporate entities can use the rights of human beings in the Constitution against the laws of our country, whether they're campaign finance laws, healthcare laws, or other laws. And I think that's, that's a really important distinction because once you decide something has the rights of people, they get the same thing that we, you know, fragile, humble human beings get, which is sort of protection against the leviathan of government to preserve our autonomy. Under whatever definition of corporations or what we want them to be in our society, once we give them autonomy so that they're protected against, quote unquote, protected against the leviathan of government, we're talking about global corporations that are bigger than many governments, bigger than many states, and we're, when we're allowing them to have autonomy not from big bad government, but from we the people, and making laws that would actually get that balance right. So in the end, the creator of corporations is we the people. I mean, they're, they're under state laws. Corporations don't exist in nature. We create them when we pass corporate laws. So we need to be the people who decide what privileges and rights do they get, and what burdens and obligations do we want to put on them. And once they go to the court and say, well, we, that doesn't work for us anymore. We want constitutional rights that immunize us against the people's choices. We're going down a very dangerous road, I think. I think, I think you'll have the last question. I have a big voice anyway. <laughs> um, it's not as much of a question as just a, a, a hopeful sort of, this is, this is what's going on, folks, and this is where y'all can get involved and, and things are much more positive and uh, uh, there are more opportunities for voice and agency than one would think. Um, first of all, I think it's hard to ch make change with the same eyeglasses that are looking at something using the same lenses and institutions. Um, so that when we think about money and politics or the economy, the marketplace has its own set of rules and then 
privately we may have other sets of rules. I think those are kind of misleading. Um, I spent 10 years teaching here at Harvard Divinity School courses on money and morality and wealth power and the public interest and all that kind of stuff. Um, and for the last 33 years have been focused on how to put politics into decisions about money. Rather than take money out of politics, I grew up in politics. My dad was the mayor of the capital of Michigan, so I know well what the fault lines are in terms of that. But I think it's really possible for us now, given massive sea changes that have taken place in the last three decades, the emergence of an infrastructure all over the place, not so much the public doesn't know as much about this as it should. That's why I spend one day a week at the Bay State Banner. Uh, but there are opportunities for us as citizens to put money, put politics and civic virtue back into decisions about money. Now, when you look back, the vocabulary of Wall Street and the vocabulary of theology are very much the same. The words that are used are very similar. There are words like covenant, good, value, vest, invest, redeem, redemption. Equity has double meaning. It can mean standing in the community or it can mean that you have a piece of paper that gives you wealth. Looking at what's going on now and the pluralism and the opportunities to leverage the money power, which includes corporations, to the public interest in ways that reflect the moral agreements that citizens can make among them outside of organized politics is, I think, a challenge that we, can, that we can meet. It's something I'm working on organizing in the city of Boston as an urban pilot. And there's a cool dude named Reverend Ray Hammond, who's one of the people that is supporting me on this process, <laughs> who was a guest speaker in my class at one point, along with Jeffrey Brown and other people from the uh, community. So I think if we if just, Think about the frames that we're using, because a lot of what this discussion that has occurred tonight has addressed are the very same things that a number of people here at the Divinity School were addressing 10 years ago, and are the very same things that could be revisited within a new context where there is more concern about sustainability and putting virtue back into decisions about money and looking not just at corporations, but all the other kinds of asset classes that could benefit our community in which citizens have a say. So that's kind of an infomercial. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> Anyone like to respond? I like the idea of putting politics back in money. I think Elizabeth Warren is our woman for that, and, and it, it would be really nice if we could put politics back in housing and politics back in all kinds of things where the conversations have been completely missing. I talked to Elizabeth Warren once about housing. She said, yeah, actually, since, Bernie, uh, since uh, Barney Frank uh, left the Congress, no one really talks about housing. That was it. That was the whole conversation. Uh, and, and then I want to go back to the prior uh, uh, question and for two seconds and just reinforce the seven years versus quarterly reports thing and, and remember back to the moment where the markets collapsed and we were bundling bad debt as good in CDOs and we were just the sun is the moon and cats were traveling to Mars with dogs and it was complete absurdity right and Alan Greenspan looked back on his career just in ashes before his feet and said huh I never would have expected that so many people would operate for the short term in their, long, in their obvious long term, uh, against their longest, uh, obvious long term best interest. 
Uh, and basically now, that's all we do we, in, in the market. All we do is put off the difficult conversations and operate in the short term. When I, when I brought up several uh, uh, objections to a group of Muslim bankers who enjoy what they do, they said some of these objections are valid and some of them are not nuanced. But for the valid ones, why don't you just get in and make money while the getting is good? Right? We know what's falling apart is the implication, but uh, everyone's got a gun to everyone else's head, so you might as well go in and find your way to make money because that ought to be all that matters and because, uh, uh, you know, irrespective of the amount of time that we can survive this process, at least you can look out for yourself. Um, and I think politics has something to say about altruism, something to say about the public good, something to say about regulation, and that we can get there. So maybe that reinforces some of your point. Just, well, a, just a thought about, it raises an issue we could talk about for two hours more, but what are, what's the impact of culture on politics and economy? And sometimes we act like it's only about government or the marketplace. Dr. King knew that to change things on the inside, he had to change the conversation on the outside. And we didn't get 64 civil rights, 65 voting rights until he had succeeded or a movement had succeeded in changing a conversation on the outside. And so um, when you said sustainability, uh, I talked to a friend the other day who is a big solar power advocate, and he said it's not just going to be government decisions that move us to a different place. It's going to be the marketplace realizing that, in fact, solar power and wind power are cheaper and cheaper. And building sustainability is what we want now. It's what our children want now. And so this is back to the narrow quarterly profit loss is a bad metric when you're talking about sustainability in regard to energy, for example. Because as, as the pastor said, uh, it, this puts a deadline, I love that phrase, a deadline are getting, on getting our act together again. If the culture gets to that place, it'll put pressure on marketplace and government to make different decisions. And the faith community uh, you know, needs to have a profound impact on changing culture not just lobbying in politics or market, but changing culture. Are we changing the minds and hearts of our congregants? Or are they just polarized politically? And which network they watch is more important on them than what sermons they hear on Sunday. So how do you change culture? Uh, social change comes by changing culture, and out of that comes changes in politics and marketplace. So I think those are very good points. I think for two hours we have managed not to put off the difficult conversation for later, uh, but to engage it deeply. Uh, if you have heard any new ideas tonight, I invite you to reflect as you head home on how those new ideas will shape your own political choices, both in the short term, the next month, uh, and six years and beyond from now. Please join me in thanking these wonderful panelists.